morning, everyone. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Paul Graham. I'm lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside. And we're continuing in our series now in Colossians. And there's just two messages left uh, this week and next week for life groups meeting together. Some life groups may continue to meet through the summer. That's completely up to you. I won't have special notes or anything, but of course, the messages are always online and you can always talk about the things that we're looking at in the Word of God in your life groups. But official life group season in Colossians winds up in a couple of weeks. Now, our text today is Colossians 3, 18 to 4, 1. So you can turn there in your Bibles or tap there on your phones to get ready for that. But first of all, we need to put this text in its context. Um, we're talking about countercultural Christian living. And if you go back two weeks to Palm Sunday, we talked about that beautiful text just prior to this, where Paul was painting a picture of Christian living that was not digital, individualistic, expressive, autonomous living, but it was analog, communal, submissive living. And, uh, and the beauty that was in that. Now, in this text, Paul is going to expand that out very briefly into other spheres of our life other than the church. It would be great if Christians could just live at church all the time. But we have work, and we have family, and we have other spheres of our life, education, where we have to live as Christians. And so Paul says, this great, amazing thing that I told you about the church and how countercultural it is, applies to other things in your life too. The gospel changes how we live as Christians in our marriages, at school, at work. We're living counterculturally in every sphere of our life. But because it's so countercultural, it needs, this text specifically, needs a lot of context. Nobody likes being taken out of context, and you know what I mean by that, right? Um, where people lift the words that you wrote or things that you said out of their circumstances and then misattribute meaning to them. Uh, that's probably happened to you more than once, and it creates all kinds of confusion. It often creates hurt, and people have hurt feelings because they misunderstand your words. There's misunderstanding. You're painted in a very bad light. They think you're a terrible person because of you know that one sentence of a tweet or an email that they heard somebody pass along to them completely out of context. And when reading the Bible, of course, context is always important, too. These are literally letters that Paul wrote to church members. You would hate it if somebody took your email and read it out of context in the wrong place or misattributed meaning to your words that weren't really your words. So we need to do the same courtesy to Paul and to the biblical writers to understand their context and what they are trying to say in the context in which they exist. And... It's especially important in this text because Paul, very casually, in one paragraph, uh, just happens to land on three of the hottest cultural and moral subjects it could possibly raise. Um, here in our, and I'll just read the text, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So just here's the paragraph of our text, and we'll just see if there's any room for misunderstanding in this text. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, or literally, contextually, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bronze servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So now I am definitely going to pray before I preach on this. Father God... (laughs) Thank you for your word. Thank you for the beauty of it, for the pointedness of it, for the clarity of it. Father, thank you that we get to study it. And Father, that uh, by your Holy Spirit, you will enlighten us and help us understand the context here and what Paul is trying to communicate from his heart to these good little Christians in Colossae and this church that has its roots in the gospel and where he wants them to grow out in that gospel message and that gospel living into all spheres of their life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So there's nothing there that needs context, right? Just the order of relationship between wives and husbands, okay? And then parents and children. That's a little safer ground for most of us, I think. But then the relationship between bond slaves and masters, yikes. And to top it off, then Paul affirms God's final judgment and punishment against sinners in this world. So, yeah, there's a few hot topics in here that we need to get in context. And so I want to just start with two or three levels of context before we unpack it. Because if we were to just lift this paragraph on its own, as we have done, just pulled it out of the letter, and then we wouldn't treat it fairly out of the rest of the letter. It needs the rest of the letter around it. And also, another level, if we... If we lift this letter of Colossians and and we lift the writer Paul out of the context of what the whole Bible says, then we won't treat the letter or Paul's words fairly because he's saying them within the context of a spirit-inspired Bible. And then thirdly, if we lift this paragraph and the letter and the Bible out of historical context that they were written in, then we won't treat them fairly either. So all of the words that Paul uses here carry the meaning that the whole Bible intends for them to carry. And the words carry the meaning that the author intends for them to carry. Just like anyone taking our words out of context and giving the meaning we never intended, we would not be treating scripture or Paul fairly if we inject our own context into his words. So let's just do a quick survey of the letter this paragraph is in, and then the whole Bible that this letter is in, and we'll touch on the historical context the Bible is set in. And with hopefully just a few minutes of preparation, we'll then be able to attempt to treat this letter as Paul has written it, and treat this text as Paul has written it, in its context, and not abusing it with meaning that neither Paul nor the Holy Spirit intended it to carry. So first of all, we have the context to the letter of which Paul is writing to this good little church in Colossae that started well in the gospel. And as we've been studying this letter, one clear theme has emerged. This is Paul's heart. Paul wants these Christians who have their Christian faith and their Christian life rooted in the good gospel message that Epaphras has brought to them, we saw in chapter 1. Paul wants them to grow deeper in their knowledge of Jesus and the gospel. And by growing in their knowledge and understanding of Jesus and the gospel, they will gain the wisdom and the power to live countercultural and counterintuitive new lives. That's what Paul wants for this church. That's what he wants for his readers. And the most immediate context of this upcoming paragraph about wives and husbands, children and parents, bond servants and masters are the verses right before, which we covered 
two weeks ago. You'll remember they were a radical call not to live selfishly and autonomously in an individualistic culture, but to live humbly in a mutually submissive community of the church. And I hope you remember the beauty of that text from two weeks ago. And if you didn't hear that message, go back and listen to it again, because it's a beautiful, beautiful paragraph. But I'll just touch on it. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You remember that? That's just preceding this text. That's where Paul's heart is going for these Christians. And he's talking about Christians living in the church, specifically in that case. And so when Paul talks about humility and meekness and bearing with one another, first in the church, which we all love, I don't know any Christian that doesn't love that paragraph, Paul is going to extend that meaning out and that thrust out from the church into two or three other spheres of the Christian life. The image of God and the gospel and the gospel plan for our flourishing in the church doesn't just stay in the church. It flows out into all other parts of our life. And that's good. That's a good thing. And that's context one. That's what Paul is writing about. That's where his heart is at in teaching these Christians that the, that the gospel and what they learn will begin in the church and it will go out to other areas of their life. But then we also have the context of this letter and these words in all of scripture. And, and Paul uses these words in these letters. They have their roots in larger scriptural meaning that's been going on for thousands of years as God has been revealing himself to his people. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is a Bible saturated of his time, the Old Testament. He's a, a scripture saturated writer, as we know. Paul can barely get through writing a page of the New Testament without quoting the Old Testament two or three times, or quoting the teaching of Jesus. And so when Paul uses words like meekness and humility and love and also submit and obey, those words carry biblical meaning. And we can survey the whole of Scripture to test what the Holy Spirit and what God and what the Bible means by these words. And it's important that we do this because we know very well that when the Bible says love, or uses the word love, or conveys the idea of love, it doesn't mean what Disney or Hallmark means when they say love. When the Bible says meek, it doesn't mean what the world thinks meekness is. When the Bible says obey and submit, it doesn't mean what we think in our culture and what the world thinks obey and submit mean. They mean something biblically, not something culturally. Not even slave or bondservant means exactly what you might think it means. And as we've been learning through this letter, all of these biblical words mean something unexpected and countercultural. So we should almost anticipate that the biblical context and the biblical meaning of the word is probably going to mean something different than our culture thinks it means. Because in every way, the gospel transforms culture and calls Christians to live in a way different than is expected by the world around them. And so for Christians to live unexpected and countercultural lives, then the gospel transforms what meekness and obedience and submission and everything in our interpersonal relationships means. So very quickly, to get to the biblical context of these words then, let's focus on the hardest countercultural words that Paul uses here, 
and affirm from the whole of Scripture what they actually mean in Paul's context, and maybe more importantly, what they don't mean according to God. So if we look at Scripture, the Scripture in God says things like this, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may get not be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Woe to those kinds of people, God says. And he says, Open your mouth, people of God, for the mute. Speak out for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. He says things like in Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Scripture even says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, that stolen man, shall be put to death. So, With regards to women and children, and men too, in terms of submission or obedience, and even with regard to bond servants, if we go through scripture, we can find example after example after example. There are literally, and I'm not exaggerating, hundreds upon hundreds of verses about God's concern for mercy and justice. So we can find examples in scripture of what the words Submission and obedience can't possibly mean. They cannot mean being treated poorly. Paul cannot mean by saying submit or obey, be treated harshly by people around you, or even being muted or silenced by people around you. It cannot mean being subject to violence. It cannot mean having your rights trampled or ignored. Whatever Paul means by submit or obey, it can't mean any of those things because the Bible has already said hundreds of times Never God's people do those things. In fact, always speak out against those things. And I'll sneak in some historical context here. It cannot mean, when we talk about slavery, human trafficking, or buying or selling, or being stolen people, as we think of 18th to 20th century slave trade, or even present-day human trafficking. You can't just steal people and sell them or use them. The whole of scripture has already spoken out harshly against any such interpretation or the subjugation of people in such a manner. Bond slavery in the biblical context has to do with the repayment of debt, either personal or in some cases war reparations. There was a different economic context at play. They didn't have the United Nations and a war crimes court. They didn't have bankruptcy laws and garnishing paychecks to collect debt. Was it a perfect economic system? No. Is our economic system perfect? No. People are abused in it. But it was how things were settled. But the Bible never endorsed stealing people for slavery, never endorses the silencing or the trampling of anyone's rights, even a bondservant's rights. So the bottom line is, in terms of biblical context, is God doesn't call his own righteous people to defend the oppressed, and to treat well those who have been harmed, and support the rights of the poor, and then turn around a few pages later on and tell them a command that says, okay, now go and oppress and harm and subjugate your spouse and mistreat your child and underpay and take advantage of your employees. God doesn't do that. 
So whatever the Spirit and the Apostle Paul is leading Christians to do in their marriage, in their parenting, in their employment, it can't have any flavor of things that God has already strictly opposed and declared as sinful and unjust. God says hundreds of times he will crush the oppressor. And so I'm pretty certain he doesn't turn around and tell his children, hey, act like an oppressor so I can crush you. It doesn't make any sense. Any biblical context, any interpretation of commands to Christians that would result in actions that God himself would need to judge is exegetically and interpretively incoherent. It's utterly ignoring the context of God's word and Paul's words. And so we can't do that. We can't be unfair to the text and unfair to Paul in that way. And what we can do as Christians then is we can deny any interpretation of submit, obey, or being a bondservant that would include silencing, trampling, harming, abusing, mistreating, underpaying, coercing, or even provoking anyone in the sphere of our family or employment or the church or any sphere of life. If you read submit and obey and you think you can get away with any of that, you've not read your Bible. That's not what those words mean. We can and we do affirm the interpretation of submit and obey and being a bondservant, where in so doing we reflect the order and image of God in the person of Jesus Christ and his gospel for our protection and flourishing and for God's glory. There's a purpose to these words. There's a gospel purpose to these words. There's a kingdom purpose to these words, which we need to do the work to discover. Because God is telling us these things for our good and for his glory. Whenever the Bible talks about meekness or submission or obedience and even bond servants or bond slavery, when one person is bound economically to another person, it is always as a means of our protection and flourishing and for God's glory. In that, here's the key, that it pictures Christ and the gospel. Everything we do as Christians is, is reclaiming our image bearing of God. And we are on earth to continue to put forth the image of God and to bear the image of God and to proclaim both in words but also in our lives and how we live our lives the picture of the gospel. Paul even calls himself a bond slave of Christ, bought with a price. We are not our own but we serve Jesus. And that is intentional that he uses that word. That is intentional that that is the picture that he is painting of what Christ has done on the cross to purchase his redemption. And so now he lives his life bound to Christ. We also have in this context of this letter of Paul and other scriptures, the equality of all believers. Paul just got finished saying in this same chapter, Colossians 3.11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul said that. And in Galatians, same writer, he says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul said that. So we can, and we do as Christians, deny that the commands to submit, obey, or even be a bondservant has anything to do with conveying a meaning of lesser equality or worth or competency. It doesn't mean that. If you bring that into those words, you're bringing your own baggage into those words. Because Paul has made it clear in this letter and in other letters, and the Bible's made it clear, that equality is for everybody. 
Neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And we can affirm, and we do affirm, that submission, obedience, even bond servanthood, leaves personal equality and value and competency completely intact, and that any differences in gender, race, or class are meant to more fully express our oneness in Christ and our image-bearing of God, so that we can say that all races together provide a more complete image of God than one race or people could on its own. The spectrum of class and profession and creativity and roles of human flourishing better express the image of Christ than one class or one profession or one art on its own. And the picture of women and men together bearing unique aspects of the image of God so that we can say neither woman nor man on their own can fully express the image of God, but as male and female we more fully express the perfect image of God that we could not do on our own. And all of that, as I talk about that, brings us back to that beautiful picture of the preceding verses in the letter, the picture of meek, humble community, the Spirit is forming, everybody together, not getting hung up on who's got more money, less money, who's the boss, who's the slave, who's the employee, who's the man, who's the woman, who's circumcised, who's uncircumcised. Paul says none of that matters in the church. It's one body all together, that beautiful picture of submission to each other. And we could go on. And it's so that we could recover our lost image bearing of God and put the good news of the gospel on display. And this is how this happens. This is how this practically happens when we live in community that way. Because even though we have rights, even though we could demand our autonomy, just like Jesus didn't have to humble himself and submit to creation. He was in heaven. He was perfectly content in heaven with the Father and the Spirit. He didn't have to come, but willingly he came. Meekly he came, never giving up his identity of who he was or his value or his worth, but he submitted even to death on a cross. And so like him, we take up our cross and follow in his likeness. And in small ways, every day we die to our self-autonomy. And we display the humility and meekness, and submission, and obedience of Christ in the gospel. We put it on display when we do that. We say this is, in a very tiny way, this is what Christ and the gospel is like. And that flows out from the church into every part of our life. Men towards women, women towards men, husbands towards wives, wives towards husbands, parents towards children, children towards parents, servants towards masters, masters towards servants. Whoever you are bonded with, whoever you are with, This humility and meekness and picture of the gospel and picture of Christ is meant to flow out, not just in the church, but everywhere, is where Paul is driving at here. It's with every relationship that we have. So I could say more here, but let's get back to our text now and just follow that train of thought. I'll just put it up. I won't read it again. But Paul is talking about wives and husbands. He's talking about children and parents. He's talking about employees and employees. Employers or servants and masters. And as we read this text now, we know that God has commanded in every one of these areas of our life as Christians. We can feel, when you read this text, you can almost feel in your guts the countercultural weight of these commands. This goes against everything in our culture, it goes against everything in our instinct. We can feel how hard the gospel calls us as Christians to swim upstream against our human nature. 
We're always swimming upstream against our nature, always swimming upstream against culture. Our, one of our music leaders here, Lindsay, she had a, has a band, puts a band together from time to time, and she calls, when they get together, they call the band Upriver Draw, which is such a, it's such a great name. When she said that name, I was like, that is perfect. Because that's what we need. We need the upriver draw. We need to get drawn up the river against the current. That's what the Christian life is. And when you read a, a paragraph like this, you can feel the countercultural weight of it. You know you've got to swim upstream. And that's a good indication that it's probably gospel. If it's calling you to swim upstream against culture, it's probably a gospel command. But at the same time, even as we read that, we can be absolutely comforted by the knowledge that the reason it is safe for us to act so differently and do things that in our flesh we wouldn't want to is exactly because God has transformed these relationships through the gospel so that they don't look like they used to look. Bond servants don't need to fear Christian masters because of their mastery is not meant to look like the world's mastery of another. Children do not need to fear their parents because their parents are not trying to live their lives vicariously through them or get satisfaction from them. Wives and husbands do not need to fear the power struggle of marriage because neither husband or wife is approaching marriage trying to get what they need out of it for themselves, but they are approaching it to serve each other. And make each other holy. And Paul knows this is countercultural. He absolutely knows that all of this context and interpretation is required for these commands to make any sense at all to a Christian. That is why every countercultural command in this text comes with a trailing caveat to make it clear that it doesn't mean what the Colossians think it means. So Paul is coaching these young Christians, saying, I know that what I just told you is going to sound hard, and it's going to sound what you don't want to do, and you're going to misinterpret it. And so right after I tell you to do it, I'm going to give you a little snippet of a little caveat to put it in context. And so we can look at these three caveats that Paul uses to coach them through how these commands are different. He says, I'm Somewhat lost somehow, I am sorry. <laughs> we'll fix this in post-production. Yeah, we did that. Wow. Oh, there it is. <laughs> That was weird. I just got totally lost in my notes there. So now notice this. This pattern of Paul using these caveats is not by accident. Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then, right after he says that, just in case these Colossians are still thinking culturally, just in case they still think that submit means that the wife has to just put up whatever jerk of a husband she has and do all his tedious stuff, Paul clarifies the context of this submission for the husbands. He says, but husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So just to be clear, husbands, when I say submit, it does not mean that your wife needs to submit to your stupidity or meanness or arrogance or whatever nonsense you're up to. Your wife is submitting as fitting to the Lord, not as is fitting to you, and you better mind your own self, or you should go back and check out what God said would happen with oppressors. 
And when I say love your wives, I don't mean Hallmark love. I don't mean Disney love. I don't mean just romantic love. I mean Christ love. Because this word love has the same biblical meaning that we have to put biblical meaning into submit and obey. So we put the biblical meaning into love, then I mean Christ love. I mean Ephesians 5 love. I mean like humble yourself to bleeding out to death on a cross to serve her love, husbands. That's what I mean by love. Husbands, love is actually the harsher command here. You will come to Christ perhaps someday, and Christ will say, you tell me you loved your wife, and Jesus will say, show me the wounds that you took for her glorification and perfection. Because your love, husbands, is supposed to be like Christ's love. That's the command. So he says, wives, submit to your husbands, but just in case you're still thinking culturally, understand that I mean gospel submission. And husbands, you need to be clear, I'm talking about biblical love. The same pattern holds with children and obedience. He coaches them. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And again, just in case you Colossians or anyone else is thinking culturally where children were often poorly treated in a variety of ways or just basically you know, served the whims of their parents, Paul immediately clarifies the new context, the gospel context for Christian parents. He says, but fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So to be clear, dad and moms, because Paul's speaking to parents, this doesn't mean you just boss your children around. They are obeying obeying you in ways that will be pleasing to the Lord. They don't need to obey you if you're commanding them to displease the Lord. And you should not even parent them in a way that discourages them and provokes them and that tempts them to stumble in sin that tempts them to doubt their image-bearing of God and their competency and their worth and their value and all those things that the Bible has already said is true about everybody in the image of God. So Paul says, here's a hard command. Obey your parents. It can be hard sometimes to obey when you're a kid. I get it. But as your parents, as your Christian parents don't provoke you, as they don't tempt you to sin, as they don't, you know quash your image-bearing of God or put you in doubt or, or tempt you to disobey God, then obey them as they parent well, you child well. And then the same pattern holds true for bond servants and masters. Paul keeps coaching through these caveats. He says something that nobody really wants to hear. He says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Saying, servants, like, it's like serve in good faith and sincerely and, and do well for your masters. But just in case you're reading this culturally and think, I'm just telling Christian bond servants they need to roll over and just accept whatever working conditions you throw at them as if, as if they don't have any rights and you, know, you tell them to work a 70-hour work week, they just have to deal with it. Well, first of all, they don't really work for you. They work for God. They will give you good, faithful, productive work as a Christian worker, knowing that they really work for the master of both of you. And as for your being a master, Paul wants to explain. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Masters, bosses, CEOs, whoever you are, you might think you're a big deal. But there is a master of masters. And so, yes... It is your employee's duty, your bondservant's duty, to give you a fair day's work. 
But you need to treat them justly and fairly. You need to pay everyone what is owed them. You don't mistreat them. They get cared for. They get protected. They have the rights and benefits they should have. Or perhaps you and that husband can both read what God has already said about injustice and harsh treatment by oppressors. And understand that you are answerable to that master when it comes to your employee-employer relationships. It's eye-opening what God has to say about oppressors. He is not pleased. And so Paul coaches these Christians by these caveats. He's saying, I get it. I know these are countercultural commands. I understand they're hard. But you have to understand them in the context of this humble, meek, submissive, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, gospel community that you live in. You take that and you move that out into your home and you move that out into your parenting and into your workplace and you have that same humble humility and service and self-sacrifice for each other on both sides of the relationships. And in the middle of the paragraph, Paul elaborates a bit of encouragement for the bond servants. I don't know why he elaborates just for the bond servants in this case. I think maybe realizing that in some ways they have the hardest current to swim upstream against in the Roman culture. But I also think because it's a general encouragement to all Christians who are submitting to one another. It applies to wives who are humble with their husbands and husbands who humbly love their wives. It applies to children who obey their parents and parents who work hard to serve and provide the best conditions and discipleship for their children to flourish. Servants who serve their masters and masters who work to provide justice and fairness to their employees. I think he puts it in here because it applies to all of them, but he just uses the bondservant paragraph to put it in there. Everyone on both sides of these equations working in these spheres of life, they share the same hope that Paul unfolds for the bondservants. What he writes in verses 24 and 25. He says, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. In other words, our reward and our satisfaction in the church, at home, as parents, wherever we are in the workplace, is not ultimately in the positions we hold in those spheres. It's not the title that we have. It's not the power that we have. It's not what we've accomplished there. Our reward is in the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. We live in this world with our eyes on eternity. That's where our hope is. Our hope is not that we are going to get everything exactly the way we want it in this life. Our hope is is that as we are faithful image bearers of God and image bearers of the gospel in our lives, our reward will be far and above and beyond anything we can imagine in heaven. And if we have our eyes on our reward here, if we keep our eyes on the sphere of the church or the sphere of the family or the sphere of employment or the sphere of education or whatever sphere or even recreation or whatever, you take this, if you have your eyes on that sphere and you say, I need to get my hope and my satisfaction in that, you will be disappointed ultimately. And if you need justice, if there is any injustice, if there are any wounds, if there are any harm, if there's any debt incurred by our functioning in the church, by our functioning in our families, by our functioning in the working world, if there's any injustice or harm caused by us following gospel commands in those areas, God is the final judge. He will set all wrongs right. He will heal every wound. He will repay every debt. He will even wipe every tear. 
We don't look for those things here. We look for those things in eternity from God. That's the hope that Paul puts out to all people, all Christians who are living humble, submissive, meek, self-sacrificing lives. You don't need to get yours now because you're going to get it all in heaven. But in the meantime, even as we're equal by race and equal in gender and age and profession and class and competency and value and worth, in every other way, Paul and Scripture has declared us equal. We are at the same time all reflecting the image of God in our unique way that he has called us into for our flourishing and joy in our relationships. Whether it's in the church or in the marriage or with your children and at work, God has called us into a sphere of life and a role in that sphere of life that is for our protection and flourishing and joy and to put his gospel and his son on display. It's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. But it is intended for our joy and his glory. Every Christian, every disciple asks themselves in every part of their life, how am I as this person that God has made me and put me on the earth to be, how am I as this unique person equal in the spirit with all other believers, but also this ethnicity, this class, this gender, this whatever, this husband, this wife, these children. How do I reflect the image of God and put on display the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ in how I live? How am I going to live counterculturally to what my flesh wants, what everybody around me says I should be doing. Every disciple has to ask themselves of every part of their life, am I going to follow my flesh? Am I going to follow the world? Or am I going to follow the word of God? At the end of the day, there's no competition. The word of God is there for our good and his glory. And these instructions are meant for our flourishing. There is nothing God commands us that is intended for our harm. Now, there are a lot of implications that can be unpacked from this text in terms of how do we live as Christians, as husbands and wives? How do we live as Christians, as, uh, you know, parents and children? How do we live as Christians in the workplace? So much to unpack. Lots of implications. And we may touch on some of them in the near future. Some of them I get unpacked with people in my office almost every week. But let this teaching from the scripture be a basis, a foundation of God's heart towards us. This is how God wants us to live and have relationship with each other. So, life group leaders, over to you. That should be fun to unpack this week. Enjoy that. (laughs) Let's pray. (laughs) Father God, there are incredible implications to the gospel truth. Incredible implications of what your son has done and what he's done for us and incredible implications for us as we follow him and have received the gift of the Spirit and are called to live these countercultural Christian lives. And so, Father, I just pray that we would just take this message, this short little paragraph in the midst of this amazing letter. And, man, I, I for one, wish that Paul had written more than, like, one sentence on husbands and wives. But... You have given us the Holy Spirit. You have given us the character. You've given us the ability, the power, the transformative power of the gospel to live in ways that we would not have expected of ourselves and certainly not the way the world expects us to live. 
And Father, it's beautiful. It is as beautiful in these contexts as it is beautiful in the context of the church that we saw a couple of weeks ago. So we can just take that same beauty of Christian relationship in the church and we can bring that into every other sphere of our life. Father, help us to do that, to live radically countercultural gospel lives and put the image of your goodness and your son on display for this world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.